If I may get your attention, uh, I'm Professor Chris Alden uh, with the Global South Unit here at the LSE. It's a real pleasure to have uh, this distinguished audience and, and uh, of what I hope to be uh, part of an active seminar that uh, will help uh, unpack some of the ideas that are going to be presented today around entrepreneurship, uh, uh, questions of productivity, etc., as seen through the Latin American experience. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to introduce friend and colleague, President Enrique Garcia of, of the Latin American Development Bank, or CAF. Uh, uh, this is a, a great honor to have him here, and he, he's, uh, his distinguished career would, would take a, 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 a fair amount of time to cover, and I don't want to go into uh, all the details, but I will say that he is, he's played a significant role in the financial and banking sector and all the leading institutions, uh, in, 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 uh, also in the, the Bolivian government in an earlier era, um, and, is, and is well known not just regionally, but of course, as, as you yourselves will know, beyond, beyond the region, and has been a good friend of the LSE for, for a considerable amount of time. So for that, we're, we're very pleased. And he will, uh, he will be speaking in a moment, but let me also introduce uh, Dr. Daniel Ortega, who, uh, educated, who, who um, is not just the senior economist uh, with, with the CAF, but, also, but, but is also... Um, uh, an academic in background has uh, has worked uh, extensively uh, on the impact uh, evaluation um, uh, area, and uh, has uh, is is the author, of course, of the report that is being launched today uh, through the Global South Unit. Um, he, he did his degree work at the University of Maryland, and uh, again is um, uh, well recognized within his own field here. So let me. Start by uh, bringing uh, President Garcia here. Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you, Chris, very much. I'm I'm delighted, very pleased to be here today. I'm on my way back from Beijing. I arrived uh, yesterday and going back to Caracas, and I'm lucky enough that I'm in London when we have this important seminar. And to be here. This morning shows the high commitment that I have as president of CAF and my institution to, to the strong relationship with this great university. In fact, we have a, an agreement and we have been working. We have a, a yearly conference. We have visiting scholars and we are supporting people for the master's degree. And, of course, we are very interested in in promoting development. Maybe a few words on, on CAF, because I'm, I'm sure that many of you don't know what, what CAF is. CAF is a multilateral development bank, which originally was created in the sub-region, the Andean sub-region, five countries. But today, it's a regional bank, because we have 18 countries. And there is a very important element which I would like to emphasize. We are the only regional multilateral, I think in the world, that in essence is owned by emerging countries. Because if you look at the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank or the African Development Bank, Inter-American Development Bank, in those institutions you have two types of, of owners. Uh, one, the, the donor countries, the United States, the UK, Japan, etc., who put money but don't get any of the services, and you have the developing countries in Africa, in Asia, and Latin America. In our case, you don't have donor countries or recipient countries. Everybody has both roles, and in fact, that's the way this institution has become a very important institution in Latin America. Just to illustrate to you, uh, today we, we represent approximately the same amount of of lending and operations in Latin America than, than the Inter-American Development Bank and, and the World Bank. Even last year, we, we lent more than the World Bank in, in Latin America, and we are working in different fields. Now, one element is I think is very, very important is that in, in addition to, to providing financial resources for for development, for infrastructure, for social sectors, for the small enterprises, so forth. We are quite committed to the intellectual side of development. And that's why we have a strong network of, 
of universities and, and think tanks around the world with whom we work together, we organize seminars, we do things like the ones we do with this great university. But perhaps one, one comment, what's our vision of development and what are the, the central issues that we see in Latin America that will tie it up with, with the presentation of our annual report, economic report of, uh, of, of 2013. We strongly believe in a, in a model that will have a, a comprehensive agenda. In other words, you have to work in terms of the following elements simultaneously. First, macroeconomic stability. If you don't have that, you're in trouble. Secondly, it's not sufficient. You have to have microeconomic efficiency, which is the engine of growth, not sufficient. You have to have a type of growth that will be inclusive. In other words, they will solve the issues of poverty and, of course, try to improve. One of the most serious issues in developing countries is the case of Latin America, is the case of China, many, is inequality. And finally, you have to do all these things thinking about the environment, sustainable development. That's, that's our vision. Now, what are the, the challenges in Latin America? If you see Latin America in the last 15 years, or even 20 years, has done a very good job uh, in terms of reasonable growth, low inflation, uh, reduction of poverty, so forth in the majority of countries. Well, thanks to two elements. First, we learned the hard way, the lessons of mismanagement of macroeconomics. In the, in the late 70s, we got indebted. We, 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 we didn't take care of fiscal balances. And then we had the famous debt crisis of the 80s, which implied a period of... of, of of adjustment that was so severe in terms of the, of the damage done to employment, to growth, that we learned the lesson the hard way. So most governments in most countries in Latin America are very responsible in management macroeconomics. But that's one element. But the other thing is that the question is, should Latin America be satisfied with the rate of growth that has shown in recent years? That's about an average, let's say, about 4%, maybe. And the answer is no. We made a study in Latin America 2040, which shows very clearly that if Latin America wants to converge with the industrialized countries in the last 25 years, and at the same time solve in a sustainable manner the issues of inequality and poverty, it has to grow at least at 6% on a continuous rate. That's one point. But the second thing is it cannot be satisfied with the type of growth that we have had, which is, especially in South America, too concentrated in raw materials without sufficient value added. So what is the, the great challenge? In our opinion, the pillar for the future of Latin America, a high priority is productive transformation. Productive transformation implies how do you increase productivity, how do you move from a model of exports in commodity form and you try to have more value added, how you adapt technology, innovation, so forth? That's the great challenge. And precisely because of that is that in CAF, in our research area, we provide every year we have an annual economic report. And this year, last year, I'm sorry, precisely, the report that is going to be presented by Daniel, it shows some of the conclusions that we have had concerning this matter. So this is a great challenge, and here we, you will see how important it is to, to find ways to move away from three traps that Latin America has. The first one is the mid-income trap. Latin America is a mid-income region, but it cannot move which is tied up to the so-called commodity trap and to a third trap that's informality trap. And you will see in the presentation that 
many of these things are, 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 are tackled in the present. So I'm very pleased to, to be here and, and to see young people. I see some people that are came, you didn't come in the same plane, but you came also from China. And, and I think uh, it's very, very stimulating to see uh, this group. So good, good luck. And by the way, I'm going to, one of the reasons I came also is because I'm evaluating my staff. And depending how he does in his presentation, we'll see whether he gets a, a, an increase in salary, <laughs> and, and, or even if he stays in the, in the, in the, in the bank. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, thank you for that, uh, Mr. President. Um, um, uh, thank you, Chris, for your introduction. Alvaro, also, thank you very much for putting this together. We're really very happy uh, to be here for the first time presenting our flagship report, which this year is on productivity. And as many of you know, many of you may not know, uh, productivity is at the center of Latin America's development challenges. Um, and productivity is, um, is basically the, is, is a necessary um, step in order to, it's a necessary uh, challenge in order to improve people's uh, level of uh, well-being. Uh, and so at the center of productivity is essentially the entrepreneur. Uh, the entrepreneur is, uh, plays a significant role in, in the process by which well, firms uh, organize production. Uh, they also are responsible for uh, carrying out and put, bringing to market innovations. Uh, they're responsible for taking and managing risks that, firms, uh, uh, that first the firms face. They also promote competition by bringing new products to market. Um, and by bringing new ways of doing things also to the productive uh, system. Uh, they also play a role of inspiring and mentoring other people to create new enterprises as well. So this is also a role that we'll see is actually pretty important for aggregate productivity. Now, just like not everyone can be a good football player, not everyone can be a good entrepreneur. So you require some certain abilities and s skills. You also have to have, uh, you know, kind of a special motivation uh, in order to be a successful entrepreneur. And certainly, you also need uh, networks. You need finance. You need high-quality inputs. You need a number of things in order to carry out uh, a successful enterprise. Now, um, this, of course, also requires, and this is sort of a part of a broader, long-standing discussion about the importance of economic uh, and um, institutional, uh, the economic and institutional environment where, where pr uh, product production takes place. So we may ask ourselves, okay, Latin America's pr productivity problem, pr pro development problem, main development problem is one of productivity. And the entrepreneur is at the center of this. So we ask ourselves, could it be that our problem is a lack of entrepreneurship? Do we have too, too few entrepreneurs in Latin America? So uh, we take a very basic definition of entrepreneurship, which is anyone who owns their own business. And by that definition, we can compare the fraction of the labor force in Latin America as compared to a benchmark case like the U.S. and see... Well, look, no, we have plenty of entrepreneurs. We have many more entrepreneurs than, for example, the U.S. Now, of course, um, we have to look a little bit deeper into this and try to understand whether it's the quality of the entrepreneurship then. And so uh, one simple distinction that we can make is to, is to ask whether, whether these entrepreneurs hire other people or they are self-employed. If you just make this very simple distinction, it gets you a really long way in terms of understanding the productive structure of the region. And when we do that, we divide this into self-employed and employers, so to speak, and we see that the huge difference between Latin America and the U.S. in this case, but it's also uh, true for other developed countries, is essentially in self-employment. When you look at the fraction of the, of the labor force that hires other people, it's roughly similar. Latin America has a little bit more, uh, but it's roughly a similar uh, orders of magnitude. 
The huge difference is in self-employment. Of course, this is, ver this is well related to the fact that uh, when we look at the fraction of salaried workers, then, of course, in the U.S., the fraction is much, much higher because there are a, lot of, a lot of people are essentially self-employed. Now, you're probably already thinking that the implication of this is that firms in the U.S. are much larger than firms in Latin America. And this is true. 31% uh, of those employers hire 10 or more people. Whereas in Latin America, uh, only 9% hire 10 or more people. And this is, I'll, 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 be, I'll be coming back to this idea, because this graph here is really at the center of our diagnosis of the productive um, problems of Latin America. Okay? And this, all of our, our discussion is going to revolve around what this implies. Because the realization that our firms are generally small is, uh, turns out to be really, really important. So why is firm size relevant? Firm size is related to complexity of the kinds of things that a productive system can actually do. So very simple systems require possibly, normally like few people, and more complex production systems are usually related to larger establishments. But this is... Um, uh, and this is here an example of uh, Costa Rica. If you add any other country, is uh, basically similar to the to the green Latin American average. So, uh, do we have evidence that high uh, growth or large firms are more productive? Well, yes, there is a, an increasing body of evidence that shows this in our data that uh, that, that we have gathered. Um, in, in our annual survey, we see that workers with similar characteristics that work in larger establishments or larger firms earn higher wages, 24% uh, higher wages, which can only be possible if the firm is more productive, by the way. Um, they also um, report to have greater job satisfaction. And one really important thing for the long-term prospects of an individual is that the on-the-job learning in larger firms is actually much more uh, enriching. Uh, so if what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis is essentially um, carrying out a very simple task and, for example, and going out on the street and selling uh, you're basically a street vendor, you're, and you're, you're, this is your job, then the kinds of skills that you uh, learn over time and the kinds of things that you, uh, the uh, uh, yeah, skills that you acquire are really um, much simpler than those that you would acquire if you were part of an organization where you'd need to learn how to deal with people, how to follow instructions, per perhaps also how to uh, give instructions to other people. And so... Uh, Essentially, working in a, large, in a larger environment gives the individual a certain kind of training, on-the-job training, that is of higher value for complex, modern production. Okay? So there is a relationship between the kind of job you have and the kind of work experience that you have and your ability to productively be part of an organization. And so... Uh, so this is, this is an idea that is central to our argument in this report, and I want you to remember it, and I'll, I'll be insisting on it. There's another important thing, uh, which is that larger firms generate spin-offs, and spin-offs turn out to have um, uh, a very significant importance for the economy because spin-offs tend to create, tend to be of higher quality tend to be higher quality startup firms than other firms. So if a firm is born as a spin-off from a larger firm, its, its likelihood of becoming a transformational firm, a larger firm, are much, much higher than if the firm does not come from a spin-off. Okay? It doesn't mean that spin-offs are the only solution, obviously. It just means that spin-offs are actually really good for the economy. That's essentially the point. And when you have larger firms, you can have more spin-offs, and that's good. Okay? You have higher quality firm creation, and that's something that is overall really important for the economy. Now, you could ask yourselves, well, 
all, we have all these micro-entrepreneurs. Are they, do they represent like a real opportunity for firm future growth? So maybe all of these guys are, you know, they're, they're, they're the future Steve Jobs of, of this world. And uh, so is there a way that we can get to trying to understand or trying to get a sense of whether that's likely or not? And for that, uh, we can ask ourselves, and we have this technical sort of uh, analysis in, in the report, which you can look at, uh, that tries to, that asks, who do, who do micro-entrepreneurs resemble? So who are they like? So we have the universe of these micro-entrepreneurs, and we are essentially looking at the, um, the self-employed group, okay? And this is already sounding like the informal sector, right? Th these are essentially mostly people in the informal sector. So we look at characteristics, various characteristics like uh, their education, their family environment, their entrepreneurial abilities, to which I'll come back to, uh, the preference for salaried employment, and their occupational history, and we ask, Okay, so who do these guys look like? And it turns out that only a quarter of them are similar in these characteristics to other entrepreneurs who eventually hire other people, okay? So most of these micro-entrepreneurs really don't look like entrepreneurs that are really, you know, have the potential to hire others and then become transformational entrepreneurs. So most of them... 75% of them are similar in characteristics to salaried workers. And this is really important because, and it's, it's not the only part, it gets worse because of those um, 75%, most of them are similar to informal salaried workers. So most of these self-employed entrepreneurs are really very much like the guys who are uh, hired you know, in a very... Um, small firm also to, un to keep undertaking the, sort of the similar kinds of tasks that they were already undertaking when they were by themselves. So they, are, they have very low employability in the formal sector. So only 27% of these are similar to people who would eventually get a job in a formal sector firm. So these patterns are actually consistent with uh, the fact that most of these entrepreneurs say that, well, you know, I really started this firm because I had no choice. You know, if I hadn't done this, I would be out of a job, I would have no income. It's also consistent with the fact that you see in the data very few transitions from having no employees to hiring someone. So very few of these people that have their self-employed, very few eventually uh, turn their entrepreneurship into something a little bit bigger. Very, very few. Also, very few of them, and this is, has to do with this low employability, very few transition from their condition to a formal sector job. Okay? Um, so, of course, this is also related. The fact that, that very few actually eventually find a formal sector job is also related to the fact that there are few formal sector jobs. Right? Firms, large firms... Uh, have slow growth, they don't grow, so they don't demand new labor, and so these people have fewer opportunities. So it's a, uh, a vicious a cycle that goes through. And, um, and so why is this uh, demand in the formal sector, labor demand in the formal sector, not growing as fast? Well, because formal firms actually grow very slowly. And this figure here is, although it only includes Mexico and also India, because that's the other country that is in that paper, uh, this uh, is quite representative uh, of what we see in other countries in Latin America, although we can't really be as precise uh, for other countries as we can for Mexico, because the kind of data that was used to make this graph is not available for any other country in the region. This is basically using census data for every firm in Mexico and for every firm in the US, okay, in every sector. All right? And so the 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 um, what what the graph shows is the size of the firm in terms of um, employment as a multiple of the size of the firm when it was 5 years old, okay? So when it was five years old, the number is one, both for, you know, for ever, all the three countries. And then as, you, as the firm gets older, the firm grows, right? And so what this shows is when, when, you're, when the firm is 40 years old in the U.S., 
the firm has eight times the number of employees that it had when it was five. And in Mexico, it has twice as many employees. Okay? So if a firm, when it was five years old, was, had five employees in Mexico, after 40 years, it'll have 10. And in the U.S., it will have 40. Okay? And this, ba this is... Um, uh, this is really something that you know you should if, if you take few things this is one of the things that you should take away from this presentation firm growth in Latin America is too slow is too slow and this is sort of at the deep root of what uh, Mr. Garcia was talking about earlier uh, where you know we, we're not creating enough uh, activity firms are not dynamic enough and we're not being able to be a part of uh, you know, international value chains or this kind of, this is, this is, a, the, this is sort of the re deep root of that, of that problem. So um, there's other data that confirms this fact. These are ratios of the firm's size when it was born to its size at a given point in time. And these are all firms that are over 25 years old. And you can see that there's a significant difference between Latin America and uh, some Eastern, a group of Eastern European countries. If you included a bar here that had the U.S., the U.K., France, uh, Germany, the bar would be even higher. And so this basically illustrates the same thing. Uh, and the consequence of this is this other figure, um, which I also really want to, re to remember. I'm going to taking up all your memory now. But uh, this is the this is the distribution of the labor force by firm size, okay? And what it shows is that in the US, more than half, more than half of workers are employed in a firm that has 100 or more employees, okay? So more than half of the people who are working work in large firms, okay? That's the basic idea. And very few people, 23%, work in small firms, okay? And this, obviously, because it includes one, it also includes the self-employed. Now, when you look at Latin America, it's exactly the opposite. Most people work in very small firms, and very few people work in large firms. And these are examples for Bolivia, Colombia, Costa Rica, and Argentina. And you can see Bolivia is sort of an extreme case in this, in, in, in this graph, where you have only 5%, only 5% of the labor force works in a large firm, okay? And 82% of the labor force works in a very small firm. Uh, obviously, a, mo a lot of these people are uh, one-person firms, you know, so self-employed. So this here, this here is sort of the crux of Latin America's productivity problem. Okay, our firms are too small, all right? And it's not that we care about size per se. It's that size is really a reflection of higher productivity, Okay, larger firms are more productive on average. And we don't mean to say that we want to create large monopolies of firms. That's a completely different thing. We want to have a larger average firm size in every sector. Okay, so, um, so that's, uh, that's sort of, the, sort of the, the message. Because larger firms are also related to, to greater complexity of production, and that is also related to greater productivity. So what is behind the fact that, these, that our firms are growing so slowly? We can ask, are there many candidate options? And uh, we can go uh, down a short list here to, to see what kinds of uh, things we can be thinking about. One is that maybe, there, maybe we're not creating enough firms and not enough firms are dying. So the dynamics of firm creation and destruction in the Schumpeterian way is just too slow or too weak. And the answer that you can see from this graph is that no. If you focus on the graph on the right-hand side, which is only firms with uh, more than 20 employees, you can see that the entry and exit rates for the U.S. are a little bit under 5%. And they are kind of similar for even, even Argentina, which is a little bit lower, but Colombia is very similar, Chile is even higher entry, and exit Mexico and Brazil are also higher. So the dynamics of firm creation and destruction is, you know, doesn't seem to be something that can explain this lagging dynamics of, uh, of firm growth in Latin America. 
Now, maybe the quality of these dynamics is different. And uh, perhaps um, firms in Latin America, the firms that are surviving in Latin America are of lower quality. So let's say, you know, it's like a natural selection. You are, you are, if you are not fit for survival in the world of the markets, then you should die. You know, this is, this is the, what, what happens. But if, if natural selection doesn't work, then you will, you will survive and then you, you will be a, a burden to your species. And this is essentially what may, you know, you can think of ferns in sort of the same, the same way. And although this is kind of a complex, complicated table, I want you to focus on this last column here, which shows an example for Colombia. This is, the, this is the, basically the probability of a firm uh, exiting the market or a firm going bankrupt and shutting down its operations, okay? Relative, and that's by age, and that is relative to the younger firms, okay? So younger firms, let's say we normalize that to one, and this is its probability of exiting as a proportion of the probability of exiting of young firms. Now, what this, this, the fact that this is 1 and this is 0.92 means that these two numbers are fairly similar. What it says is that a firm that is two years old in Colombia is pretty much just as likely to exit or to, to, to be closed than a firm that is eight years old. So what does this mean? This means that the market is taking a long time to clean out the bad apples, okay? It's taking a long time to cleanse the productive system, and this is what we call delayed exit. And so maybe there is some of that. And this is, we believe this, some of this may be related to firms, uh, to, to public policy that in some countries creates incentives for uh, firms' survival, that, you know, firms that shouldn't survive, they survive. So maybe there's some of that, okay? We have some evidence for Colombia, some evidence for Argentina, to the same effect. Of course, smaller firms imply fewer opportunities for spin-offs, and so we do have fewer spin-offs in Latin America than we see in, in, uh, in larger, in, in, in more developed economies. Another thing is we can think, maybe, maybe we have very poor management practices in our firms. So uh, there's people who have actually gone out and studied this. You may be familiar with uh, Nicholas uh, Bloom's work on managerial practices around the world. And uh, we commissioned a paper spe specifically from his uh, team of people. And this here shows an index of the quality of managerial practices within firms. Okay? And what it so a larger number is better managerial practices. And this has to do with, you know, like bookkeeping, quality bookkeeping, clear human resources rules, and, you know, co corporate governance. So things that... There's this, you know, an ideal or good practices, best practices in terms of management. And so this index sort of measures the extent to which each firm um, follows those best practices or not. And what we see here, this is the distribution of all the firms that were surveyed in the U.S. This is the, the black one here. And you can see that every Latin American country that is in the sample is shifted to the left. So yes, our managerial practices are, in general, worse than managerial practices in, uh, in developed economies. So yes, there is some evidence of that as well. What can we do about that? Well, you guys that are getting MBAs uh, are, uh, should help us improve uh, managerial practices in, in developing country firms. Okay? Uh, and there is, of course, uh, another issue, which is a scarcity of critical inputs. And here, we come to one point that we really want to emphasize in this report, which is very much related to informality and to this process of depreciation of human capital, of employability capital that we've been talking about since the beginning. And that is, there's a lack of workers with the required skill. In every survey that is done in Latin America about what are the obstacles to growth? You, you ask private firms, what are the main obstacles to your growth? So finance usually comes up, you know, lack of financing, uh, 
you know, little innovation, you know, the difficulties for investing in innovation. So these things come up. But the one thing that stands out above the crowd by far is the lack of quality employees. And this is something that, you know, you may not have thought of this at first, in the first passing, but it turns out to be hugely important. So what's, and what's the, what is the basic issue? The basic issue is that if you want to hire someone, uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, uh, sophisticated engineering uh, specialist or physicist or chemist or things, that, you know, very highly qualified labor, you can just buy that off the international market. That's not difficult. What is difficult is to you know, hire 500 people that need to operate machinery, for example. And if they are not complying with the regulations of the firm, if they're not following instructions uh, appropriately, if they're not effective in communicating with their peers, if they, then may, they may disrupt the productive process. And it turns out that this is super important. And of course, can you resolve this? Can, you, can the firm invest in training? When they hire someone, can they invest more? You know, let, let me train these people. Sure, they can do that. And they, get, they probably you know, work around this by putting more money into it. But that's just basically that's probably the point. You know, it's more costly to hire someone, low-skilled labor, in Latin America than it is elsewhere, basically because, you know, some of these basic skills are, are not there, in great part because a lot of these people spend most of their uh, working life, working adult life, in the informal sector, where they do not acquire any of these skills. So... We'll get back to what the policy implication of this is. Of course, there are other institutional economic constraints, financing, infrastructure, regulation. We have two of our previous flagship reports. One is on finance. The other is on infrastructure. So we've done some work on this uh, as well. Uh, so let's go back to this picture that I, that I mentioned in the beginning. Uh, this, is our, this is our reality right now. So what do we mean in this book by productive transformation. In, like in the very f uh, small microeconomic detail, what we mean is to take all of these people, the excess self-employment, and turn it into salary work. Okay? And that, of course, implies an increase in firm size. So what we're talking about is basically a shift in the distribution of firm sizes in Latin America. And of course, this can't be done overnight. You can't just decree this. You can't just say, look, okay, now we're going to choose this sector and we're going to make, you know, you know I'm, I'm going to, you know, build huge plants here and so in large firms. That just doesn't work that way. We've tried that before and it doesn't work that way. You need to let the market uh, do its, its work and you need to help create the conditions for this to happen. So what are the policy options? What can we do? And the, the point is, um, uh, this is uh, our final discussion in the, in, in, in the report, um, there are four pillars to the entrepreneurship ecosystem, as we call it. Uh, the entrepreneurial talent area, innovation, financing, and employment skills. Entrepreneurial talent, and this all, of, all occurs within... Uh, you know, and, uh, something that we call the investment climate, which has to do with macro stability, uh, rule of law, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so entrepreneurial talent uh, has to do with creating entrepreneurial networks, business education. So can we, through these kinds of interventions, improve the quality of the new enterprises that are created? Okay? That's one area of intervention. Another area of intervention is innovation. Can we stimulate better connections between research and development centers, universities, and the productive sector? That's another area of, in, of, of intervention that is quite common uh, in this literature. Finance. Obviously, finance uh, is much more common. We all know much more about that. In the re you know, every firm requires financing at, at different stages of its development. So when you're really small, you need one kind of finance, and then when you're really big, you may need, you need something else. And uh, governments need to understand uh, and create and facilitate mechanisms so that finance is available at every stage. And this is actually quite a big challenge. Employment skills is the one that we're sort of adding to this. Uh, it's not so common to find 
employment skills in this kind of entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem uh, literature. Uh, and we suggest that it should be in there because these, uh, this is a key problem for firm growth, not just for firm creation, but for firm growth. Okay, um, And this refers to job training, youth internship programs, because ultimately what you want is to avoid kids coming out of the education system and going into the informal sector. Okay, That's what you want to avoid. So what is, do we have any evidence about what it is exactly that we should do in every one of these things? And that's, the big, that's, the, that's a big uh, question because we have these broad brushes. We know, okay, we should intervene in this area and this other area. But then when you come, really, you come right down to it, you need to know, well, okay, what, what exactly am I going to do? And for that, you need to know what works. And that's a whole different question, okay? So is there evidence that you can influence entrepreneurial talent. And let me just make a small side note here, uh, because I spoke about earlier, I mentioned uh, that uh, entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, had to have certain traits. And so what we did in order to examine this idea is that we measured in, you know, with uh, MBA graduates from different, you know, high-ranking schools in Latin America for ranking uh, 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 business schools in Latin America, one in Venezuela, one in Peru, one in Colombia, and one in Argentina. And we surveyed these uh, people on need for achievement, autonomy, self-efficacy, innovation and creativity, locus of control, multitasking capacity, and risk tolerance. These are all traits that the liter literature suggests are really predictive of quality entrepreneurship. And we found that, yes, these things here actually do predict quality entrepreneurship in this population. So what does this mean for policy? We say, oh, well, um, if risk tolerance is what matters, how can policy influence risk tolerance? Or how can you influence people's need for achievement? That's very difficult. And that's not our point. Our point is not to say that you're going to influence these traits. You can these traits are most likely and most often not observed. You, know, you can't really tell how risk-averse a person is by you know, looking at them or anything. Um, so the question is, if this is true, then do the instruments that we do have at hand, do they work? Can policy actually help in this respect? And for that, you need to evaluate, rigorously evaluate the impact of interventions. And that is something that we at CAF are working on really hard at this moment. One example that we've done a few years back, we evaluated an entrepreneurship training program that the Development Bank of, of Peru undertakes, the Public Development Bank of Peru undertakes, Profide. it's called the Tabla de Negocios. It's essentially a training program for aspiring entrepreneurs. And so they teach them how to do a business plan, and they teach them you know, management practices, you know, what you should do, you should talk to people. And so... What we did is we actually randomly assigned a group of people to receive the training and another group of people to receive it later. And so within this time frame where you know, we had a treatment and a control group, we were able to, to identify what the difference between them was and was attributed to the training. And so our finding is that these, this training program, even in this very small window of three months, which is where we looked because it was a very small-scale evaluation, uh, they're much more likely to create a business plan and they're much more likely to consult with specialists and use available information, which is actually suggestive of the fact that you can actually do something. You can improve the quality of new entrepreneurs, uh, of new enterprises by, the, by using these training programs. But still, this is small evidence. We're working on more. Right now, we're working with uh, the Colombian um, um, government uh, in evaluating a larger scale program, nationwide program uh, of uh, training program of the same of the same sort. Okay. Um, how about labor skills? Labor skills. What do we do about that? And that's uh, as I said before. The idea is to restrict the transition of youths from the educational system to the informal sector. And there are some evaluations. Actually, the only 
quality evaluations out there are these two, one in Colombia and the other in Dominican Republic. And they both, these are programs that stimulate, um, that give subsidies to firms that will uh, have, um, um, in, that will take interns, that will train interns at a sub, you know, with subsidies from the government. And it turns out that these programs actually improve these kids' future prospects, okay? Improves their income, and it, in some cases, includes, improves their employment probability. In the case of Dominican Republic, because there are weak effects on employment, it looks like these kids are moving from the informal sector to the formal sector. And that's why they have an increase in their income. We are also working on a large scale, much larger than these two, evaluation in Argentina, and this is something we're doing at CAF, uh, where we're also evaluating a program of a similar kind, uh, of a program that has about 10,000 uh, participants. Uh, so that should be forthcoming sometime later this year. Uh, now, do we have evidence on what kinds of interventions and in innovation and financing? There's, you know, in innovation, there is much less to be said. We don't really know what to do. Okay? We just know that this is an important area, and we know that this is something that we should learn more about. Okay? Evaluation is one instrument that we, could use, that we can and should use to improve our understanding. It's not the only one. Okay? Uh, so uh, with regard to financing, there's a lot more work being done in this area. Okay? So, so and one big question here, and which we are certainly working on as well, is uh, what are the appropriate instruments for improving financing? So with it, we're also working with the Colombian government in evaluating or trying to, to see if we can evaluate uh, their financing programs to the private sector. They have programs that are grant-based, and they have other programs that are credit-based. So what, should we give grants or should we give credit? Maybe they generate different incentives. Maybe they generate different effects. So we don't know exactly. Uh, the conclusion with this is that we need more and better policy learning about what works and what doesn't work. Uh, countries in the region make significant efforts in terms of how much they spend it to promote entrepreneurship. And aside from the fact that there is a large heterogeneity in terms of GDP, this is a fraction of GDP invested by the public sector into the ecosystem, the entrepreneurship ecosystem. What I want to show is that it is mainly driven by uh, financing uh, instruments. So most of the support goes to finance, okay, finance instruments. Uh, the other three pillars have much smaller weight in the public sector's efforts. And this is, um, I don't want to burden you with you know, this complex thing here because I'm kind of running out of time. The main way this money for financing is distributed is according to firm size. Okay, that's, that's the base, basic point. And a lot of countries, most countries with the exception of Brazil, focus their efforts on small firms. Okay? And that's, that's sort of the key message of this whole thing. And it turns out that uh, distributing funding by firm size and focusing on small firms would seem to make sense because this here is the growth of small firms, firms of this size between 5 and 19 employees, relative to large firms. Okay, so this here, it says it about... Um, the difference is about 20%. So small firms grow about 20% more than large firms. So if the, if the small firms are growing faster, you want to give more money to them so that they grow even faster, okay, and create more employment. The thing is that when you look more carefully at this and you look at uh, and you include firm age in this same analysis, you realize that the reason firms, smaller firms grow, grew faster is because they're younger, okay? And that is key for targeting of public policy for entrepreneurship. So what's the problem with targeting, um, what's the problem with targeting uh, firms based on their size? If I give you a subsidy conditional on you being a micro-entrepreneur, conditional on you not having more than 10 employees, then when you go and when you're considering hiring one more, you know, the 11th employee, then your cost of capital is going to go up. So you have a disincentive to grow and an incentive to remain small. 
And so the, if this is exactly what you want to avoid, then you should target uh, financing according to, for example, age and not size. So this is one big lesson that comes out of all of this. And so what are the big policy challenges? And with this, I'm finishing, I'm wrapping up. Uh, first of all, increase the employability of subsistence entrepreneurs and also support of those entrepreneurs that are subsistence entrepreneurs. Some of them can actually eventually become transformational entrepreneurs. And you want to support that too. You don't want to let them you know, fall through the cracks. Um, so uh, how the, the question is though, how do you distinguish those that are transformational and those from those that are not? And this is very difficult, and it has to do with these uh, incentives. You know, how, do you, how do you target incentives um, to micro-enterprises? Uh, one, so this issue about age is, is quite relevant. You need to let, if you, if you target on age, you are essentially l letting the market tell you which ones are, you know, the natural selection process, you're letting it tell you which ones are you know, fit for survival and which ones are not, you know, because if you are giving a, fir a, a firm a subsidy for a period of two years, then, and you take it away, this is going to be good for the firm, because if the firm didn't need it, then great, be because if it was already, you know, thriving, was going to grow, and then that's great, because if you take it away, then you can give that to someone who does need it, okay? That's one thing. And if the firm does need it, you want to take it away too, because if it does need it, it's not, it shouldn't exist. It should, you know, just exit. And so you want to take it away so that it ceases to exist. So we don't, so firm death is not something bad. It's something good. We want to promote quality firm death, okay? This sounds kind of awful, but it's, but if you think about it, it's really, it makes sense. Uh, so, so finally, let me just uh, end with a couple of remarks. First, our diagnosis is that the abundance of self-employment in micro-enterprises is very closely linked to the slow growth of formal firms. Okay, one of the main reasons why these firms are not growing is because there's all these informal workers who are unfit to take jobs. So it's a vicious circle, okay? These don't grow because these are informal, and these are informal because these don't demand their labor, okay? And so transformation, uh, productive transformation, uh, is essentially you know, policies that should seek to break this vicious cycle, and that is something that can be achieved slowly. It cannot be achieved overnight, but it can be achieved by investing smart money into each of these four pillars, especially into the, what we call the labor talent side of it. And if you want more details, the report is available in Spanish at this simple address over here, uh, and it will be available in English shortly as well. Thank you.